you know, I haven't got a coffee, Andrew. Have you got one? Uh, I've actually got a glass of water, but um, we'll pretend it's coffee. We'll go healthy today for the coffee break, and we'll drink water. Here we go. Okay. Uh, How's your week been? Uh, Busy. Busy and good. Yeah, exciting. Do anything exciting? Uh, Did I do anything exciting? You don't really know who I am, do you? I don't (laughs) do exciting things. Not me either. (laughs) I had a big week last week. I got out of the house. Yes, you uh, came to the sunny U.S. I did. I went to California. Eh? I had a had a, a a week of not being in. Uh, I had to wear grown up clothes and um, <laughs> adult shoes. <laughs> you mean shirts with buttons on them? Yeah, and and leather shoes and like you know pants that had a belt, no elasticated waist, <laughs> or just pants. Yeah, well, let's not go too far. Let's share all of the secrets of the. Uh, that's right. <laughs> it's not pretty how the coffee break is made, folks. <laughs> interesting week. I went to see uh, the Giga Ohm Structure Conf, which had some interesting stuff happening. I think the biggest thing that I saw there was that there was an awful lot of um, the public cloud is not for everyone was going on, mm-hmm. which is not something you hear every day. Mm, well, certainly not from public cloud providers. Uh, well, the public cloud provider, of course, so the um, Werner, what's his name, who's the head Honcho was on stage talking, and of course he couldn't even bring himself to say the word private cloud. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, People were asking him questions about the custom cloud that he was building for the CIA and also for another organization. So they actually build separate clouds for these specific organizations. Of course, the CIA has a $600 million contract over five years, so building a separate cloud for $600 million sounds like mm, good money, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. I guess it's just software. You can always press copy pretty easily for the rest of it. <laughs> for, a big, right. for a big part of it, right? So, uh, but uh, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word private cloud, but there's a uh, link. There's a, uh, where there was a recording of a show um, on GigaOhm's website with the cloud isn't all ponies and rainbows, and it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular one was a uh, very interesting because it has the guy from Evernote, who's the vice president of operations there, and there was a guy called, um, who is a Northbridge Venture Partners, general partner, Paul Santanelli from Puppet Labs, Luke Canais, and Evernote Vice President of Operations, Alexi Rodriguez, who basically sit there and say, we can't make the public cloud work for us. And mm. there's no reason that you would use it for their businesses. Evernote, because they needed to own their data, so they use Colos. And the other guy, uh, Alex Rodriguez, uh, from Puppet Lab says it just doesn't make sense to run in the cloud because it's too expensive, which I've been saying for some time. Interesting, uh, especially coming from um, Puppet, who you know are sort of supposedly supposed to benefit from OpenStack and everybody moving everything into. Yeah, but OpenStack is more of a private cloud technology than a public cloud technology, in my view. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah, it's about orchestrating the enterprise data center. Right. Uh, I thought it was really interesting because um, on the plane over. Um, the lovely people at Virgin Atlantic invited me to come down and at their bar in the uh, fancy class. Mm-hmm. They actually have a bar on the plane. And, uh, <laughs> this must be a British airline. Yes, it had radically improved the quality of the flight. I must say, instead of sitting in the a flying economy, <laughs> but they, the chief purser came to be nice to me, which I appreciate very much. Um, and I was at the bar talking to these other these two CEOs or founders of startups from London. And they were basically sold me, and it was two separate startups in there, and they basically said, yes, we have our live production site on AWS, but we've moved all of our dev and um, UAT and pre-prod into private cloud because it's cheaper. 
Now, that's usually not what you hear. You usually hear, at least on the enterprise side, people saying, we're going to do some dev and test in the public cloud, but there's workloads that we want to keep private for whatever reason. Hmm. That is... So if you're doing a lot of dev and a lot of test, what this guy, what these guys were saying is that they got to these two separate companies. Uh, what these guys were saying was they ended up having five employees just trying to keep the AWS costs under control. <laughs> well, one of them said. Um, and so what they did was they built a private cloud. And now he's got three guys who run the private cloud. Mm-hmm. So it's cheaper. It's cheaper in terms of cost because now he's not paying 100000 a month in AWS costs. And now he's um, – he said he'd move out of the AWS, but he's frightened to tell his VCs. So the funders are <laughs> – <laughs> Right, because sort of the accepted model for the venture community is don't buy a gear, put it in the cloud, don't yes. take on that cost yourself. Yeah, I got the impression that he actually hasn't told the venture capitalists that he's actually taken most of it out of the cloud because <laughs> the, they would think the business is failing or not conforming <laughs> to some sort of model. <laughs> now, so was it just a question of expense for these guys, or was it also because there are things they wanted to do that they didn't think they could do as well in the public cloud as they could do? Straight out expense. Straight out expense. It's expensive. Now, I've been saying this for quite some time. Amazon, Azure, Google Compute Engine, all that is really, really expensive compared to just building a bunch of stuff in a colo. Now, keep in mind that you have to spend money to buy the assets and put them in and get them running, but... That's not as hard as it used to be. If you're already in AWS, right, and if you've already trained a team to do automated deployments in AWS, which is a fact, right, mm-hmm. if you go and buy, let's say, you buy a rack of Dell servers, you can buy bottom half can be some storage, top half can be a bunch of servers or various things, and then a switch at the top, that's all you need. And that'll yep. run you 1,000 VMs easy on mm-hmm. a hypervisor, on a KVM or an OpenStack. You can get 1,000 VMs out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're talking less than a quarter of a million in capex, including the colo agreements, mm-hmm. to get going. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to worry about a rampant thread going on and costing you a thousand dollars a day, which has happened. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, it's not a whole. You know, keep in mind that the trick is the engineering that you need to make the cloud automated and orchestrated. <laughs> yes. If you're already in AWS, you've already got the engineering. That allows you to do the magic, you know, the DevOps stuff and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. automation. You've got the skills. You've probably already packaged your app to run on the private on a cloud platform. So if you just go and run it on your own, then you've, you're not actually doing much. You're just translating for, from Amazon down. And this is this point I made a few weeks ago, which is it's easier to scale down what Amazon does to the private cloud than it is to scale out to the public cloud. Mm-hmm. So we can bring those features that are in Azure and AWS into the data center just as much as we can go to them. Interesting. Hmm. So that's just me. I thought it was an interesting discussion. Um, at the same conference, uh, uh, Rackspace announced their bare metal cloud. Fundamentally, what they've done is put an orchestration system around provisioning bare metal systems. So you can mm-hmm. actually now go and buy a bunch of bare metal servers and then dynamically provision them with your own thing. Now, if you want to put Windows on it, you can knock yourself out, but you could also go and build your own OpenStack or whatever, you know, Eucalyptus or anything. You could build your own private cloud on top of this bare metal. So you now have this pseudo-public-private hybrid cloud thing. <laughs> so they're just uh, essentially hosting the gear and keeping it plugged in and powered and cool and all that. And, yeah, and then they've got an orchestration system so that you never have to go and fondle it. Right? So you don't... <laughs> In, in the I'm going to leave that one alone. Yeah. Well, you know, server huggers, as we call them, right? 
there's a lot of people who think they have to go down and plug their laptop into a server, you know, keyboard and a console. Well, you can replace that with other systems that allow you to get the keyboard and the console. Mm-hmm. And that's what they've done is put that system together and then wrapped a, um, a, a portal-type portal website-type thing around it so you could see your bare metal mm-hmm. without having to go and fondle it. Mm-hmm. You can turn it off and walk away from it too, I imagine. So that was pretty interesting, and I thought that was interesting that we're starting to see rational, grown-up adult discussions around the public cloud, which is nice. I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing cloud people go on that the cloud will dominate the world because that's highly unlikely. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I think this sort of happens in technology cycles. We get the hoopla and the promise, and then people start to play with it and realize it's not all <laughs> rainbows and ponies. <laughs> No, uh, which is in, which is good news. I think you know we're starting to have grown-up discussions about what it should look like. Uh, also, this week, WAN optimization market declined uh, 12%, according to Deloro Group in a, uh, a uh, what was it? A promo for a piece of research they've done. Yes. Um, I think I've been saying this over at the Packer Pushers podcast, the sister podcast to this one, that bandwidth is getting cheaper. Ultimately, and this makes WAN optimization less attractive overall. Mm-hmm. You you know much about when op- um, a little bit essentially you know you're trying to optimize uh, protocols and compress files or you know maximize your bandwidth so you put some devices out in remote offices and try to get more through the straw. True, and the thing is that bandwidth is getting cheaper and easier to get a hold of. So there's a lot of trends sort of meaning that WAN optimization is less of the um, less important to people in my mm-hmm. view you mm-hmm. could you know if you could switch to an internet connection at 100 meg then <laughs> instead of a 10 meg private wan for the same price then mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've got yourself a different scenario right yes you do yes you do mm. um i mean there's always though potential security issues with going internet over private wan and um I, I think um, the WAN optimization vendors have recognized that there's a reckoning coming, which is why you see um, them starting to roll out virtual appliances as opposed to straight hardware. Yeah, but you've still got the complexity. So if you put a WAN optimizer on the end of a WAN router, then you've got you've got to buy the WAN hardware, and now you've got to buy the WAN. You put a VM somewhere in what? The router itself? So then you're looking at a... So Cisco has a, a product around this based on their 3800 series mm-hmm. where you can put a WAN optimizer on a server inside of the router. But mm-hmm. it's pretty pricey. It's up towards the 50K mark for a unit. Wow. Um, and, you know, you could do the same thing. There are companies out there in startups, for example, who are starting to combine WAN optimization, proxy gateways, and IDS and engines and stuff like that just using an x86 server. Mm-hmm. and costing less than $2,000 a site, um, and then managing them centrally in the cloud, right? And right. Aerohive does it. They actually have a $100 node that you can take out to branch offices and give them Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. centrally managed from the cloud, yes. and it does some WAN op, or it's, they're, they're hoping to scale it out. Meraki does the same thing too. Right. Cisco's Meraki has the ability to use low-cost hardware at the edge to transform the way the WAN works. You don't need a router like you used to. So tough news then for the WAN optimization companies. Yeah, I don't see how it's going to get better. Um, a bit like switch sales, right? Switch sales is going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think while the market's in transition, and the other thing, of course, is the market's in transition. We're going from, you know, everybody's going to Ethernet switches and we're all focused on the data center and we're all focused on Wi-Fi and getting tablets and everything. So at what point does WAN get mindshare? You're not in an optimization phase now. Like the last 10 years of relatively stagnant data center work, you know, you've had plenty of time to focus on the WAN and now it's like, well, I'm busy over here. The WAN op can wait. Mm-hmm. That, that would also contribute to the decline, and I don't see that, you know, that's going to turn around in the future. Is all this uh, bandwidth availability sort of uh, available everywhere, or are we just talking about, you know, major areas like the West Coast oh, or yeah, look, Chicago? Oh, yeah, look, not going to go away. If yeah. you've got a, you know, if you're in rural Antarctica, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're not exactly flush with bandwidth, right? So having WANOP makes perfect sense for those, and even in, you know, rural America or Australia or... There are places when WANOP can be very viable, but you know, keep in mind that WAN optimization costs is charged by the megabyte fundamentally. The bigger the units, the bigger the bandwidth, the more they charge. And as bandwidth goes from 10 to 100 to a gig, they want to charge you correspondingly more and more. Well, mm-hmm. when you're at a gig, you actually WAN optimization doesn't work so well because it's so fast that the time you create optimizing can be slower than just passing it straight through. So mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of factors here that kind of, you know, it's like juggling the dials, you know, on an LED panel. <laughs> but you know, overall, I think WANOP will fade away for a bunch of different reasons. And I doubt. And even as in, and as I said at the um, presentation I gave at Interop in Las Vegas, on I did a one-hour session there on the future of the WAN. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked there about yeah, as we go to encrypted protocols. So things like SSL, the new generation of Microsoft SMB3 will be fully encrypted end-to-end. The WAN optimizers will have do be less and less useful because the data inside the packet is randomized and can't be compressed. You right. can only basically do some very simple compression, and the effectiveness will reduce over time. Mm-hmm. That's just what I think. Okay, folks, there it is, the Greg Farrow prediction. <laughs> just for a change. Um, calendars. We talked a couple of weeks ago about converged infrastructure, and Cisco published a blog post this week on the FlexPod. Uh, yes. claiming that the Cisco and NetApp, of course, have bonded together to form a thing called a FlexPod, which, uh, judging from what I've seen in the customers I've worked with, has been hugely successful. But I didn't realize it was as successful as this, um, because Cisco says, and I quote, demand for FlexPod solutions are now reaching a $2 billion annualized demand run rate, which is a lot, except yeah. nobody's quite sure what an annualized demand run rate means. That's my question. Mm. So I whipped on over to VCE because uh, VCE likes to say how great they're doing. Uh, I found a blog post thanks to somebody on Twitter who corrected me the original time. I I published a blog post on etherealmind.com first, Mm -hmm. and then uh, very graciously somebody pointed me to the VCE blog post that pointed out my first one was incorrect. Um, But I'll put a link to both of these in the show notes. So go on over to packetpushers.net. And look for the blog post that accompanies this show, and you can find all the links that we talk about. Uh, And VCE has, and I quote, demand for VCE products and services reached a 1.8 billion annualized demand run rate, exiting the fourth quarter. There it is again. So FlexPod on this basis would be bigger than VCE. Uh, On this basis, yes. Um, So the fact that FlexPod is as big as VCE is surprising to me. Uh, me as well, actually. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, most of the attention that I've seen has been around VCE, I think yeah. in part because it's uh, three um, 
competitors sort of bound up in this weird uh, relationship where they have to play nice in, in one arena while they bash each other and others. <laughs> yes, and the rumors won't die, will they? But neither no. do neither. <laughs> I mean, if, if I had a penny every time somebody sent me an email and said something wrong at VCE, I'd be like, eh, uh, you know. <laughs> I might have like a, a dollar or two. But... Um, it's it just consistently like you know doesn't you know I heard more scuttlebutt last week which I won't repeat because I can't confirm it but you know it's hard to see but Cisco and NetApp obviously doing well it doesn't mean a lot for Cisco by the way because uh, in these converged infrastructure solutions um, most of the revenue goes to the storage engines which by far take up the greatest uh, total sale value usually sixty percent and take up something like seventy to eighty percent of the profit as well so Cisco doesn't actually do so well out of these. Although I think um, <clears throat> maybe not uh, a windfall, but you know they get a foot in the door of potentially a new customer, and yeah. they, they get, get to extend into an adjacent market through this partnership. So it makes good sense. Yeah, um, and it also gives them some leverage against VCE. Yes, I don't think um, you know if the scuttlebutt is true and VCE disintegrates, then it won't be too much of a loss. Um, I hope not for VCE's sake. They do actually have some good products and lots of good people, but um, you know, the, they seem putting two competitors into one company that today doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. Yes. Uh, also, uh, I'm writing a report for Information Week and Network Computing, which talks about the state of the data center, and there's a uh, graph which will be published in the State of the Data Center report, which shows that customers don't really care about converged infrastructure stacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I look at the data from 2012, 14% of people said that that was interesting, and then 11% in 2013, and only 5% in 2014, hmm. uh, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, we don't. That's really interesting. Um, I would have thought, again, counterintuitively, I would have thought that um, converged infrastructure would be more interesting to people, not less. Yes, I would have thought so too. Um, and if we look at the drive toward private cloud, it seems like converged infrastructure is a nice way to uh, at least get a toe in the water, albeit an expensive one. Mm, mm, that's the challenge, I think. Um, there's some more survey data in there that actually says um, people just want cheap. They're not about... <laughs> Perhaps it be applied in so many places. Well... The actual question was, are you interested in reducing, you know, what's the most important question? There's a whole bunch of things, you know, are you want more security and whatever. And yeah. then down the bottom, there's there's three points, which is um, we must reduce CapEx, we must reduce OpEx, and where do you look for TCO or ROI? And TCO or ROI was the same, but the OpEx reduction and CapEx reduction went from 5% roughly to 20% for those both questions. Mm-hmm. Which means that's a that's a you know four times increase in just the bottom line has to be cheaper. Sure. Um, everything else is pretty much the same as the years before. You know, a couple of percentage either way. Right. So I think it's uh, we're in for good, interesting times. People just expect if it's true, if it is a leading indicator, then people just expect to pay less. Or would like to pay less. Yes, I think I think we're through the like to pay less. I think we're actually it must be pay less. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, there's <clears throat> this is an issue though because we always we've been doing these kind of surveys for years, and there's price is always an issue, and there have always been very inexpensive options for people to buy, uh, but they have not necessarily voted with their dollars. 
but and I'll come back to this because we've had this before, right? <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> Amazon and Google and Facebook show that it's possible. Sure, sure. Right, which is yeah. But if you're Amazon, Google, or Facebook, which most people aren't. But you can scale down what Amazon are doing to your mm-hmm. own. It's easier to scale down a technology from that or short, you know, make smart choices about what is in that working. The hardest part is gaining the belief the en- you know, that you can, with your own engineering, go and take the, you know, the things that they're doing and apply them to your setup. So right. this is a great segue, right? So into our last topic of the week, which is Facebook and their FBOS switch. <laughs> we don't even plan this. <laughs> um, Facebook and their FBOS switch, which is uh, Facebook's announced an open source uh, hardware platform, part of their open compute, that they've actually built their own operating system for a Broadcom Trident 2-based switch this week. Yes. I think the operating system is FBOS and the hardware is called Wedge. Yes, uh, what's very interesting about it was that Facebook wrote their own operating system for it. Yes. Now, that's not a, something that I'm going to be doing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what it shows is that if Facebook's – I think there's a couple of interesting things that come out of this when I think about it is that if Facebook, which is fundamentally is a company of nerds, right, can write their own operating system in six months and it took less than 15 people to do this mm-hmm. – um, what does this mean about the value of operating systems from the big vendors? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, an intriguing question, but I also think it's uh, we're, we're talking about you know the corner case of corner cases, and it, we should also be clear that um, Facebook hasn't thrown out all its existing hardware and, and put wedges everywhere. This is still a Skunk Works project for them. They're doing some testing. They're not putting this into serious production. Uh, it is in production. Right, but they're not running the whole business on it. Uh, They run a significant chunk of the business on it today. (laughs) So they don't have a test facility because none of the – I was visiting Facebook last week and chatting to some of the people in networking. Mm -hmm. There are things I can speak about, and that's one of them is that they don't um, (laughs) – they uh, literally just have it in a certain area of the network, and it's part of the production network because (laughs) they tried to build test rigs, but the test rigs didn't – no matter what they did, it didn't reflect how it worked in the real data center. Sure. So they have it in there. And fundamentally, the problem they're engineering for with FBOS is that it cannot, you should never drop a packet inside the switch architecture. Mm-hmm. And Facebook's problem has always been is that whatever switches they buy from the normal commercial vendors is that their software code is so badly written that they actually drop packets inside the engine. Mm-hmm. So it now, admittedly, Facebook runs at very, very high utilization, but that's what they're engineering for. They're writing the code so that nothing drops inside the switch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the purpose of it. So that's a very high level of engineering, but then again, they're not trying to support 250,000 different features, right? Right. Uh, they use a, BG, a form of BGP SDN where everything's layer three to the top of rack, so they don't need spanning tree or you know any of those other things. And then they use an SDN to um, selectively take flows and divert them across alternate paths. They use a flow manager, open flow type thing to select flows and send them on different paths. Mm-hmm. So very simple code, starting very small, but they are able to open source it. The, the internal architecture is they're using the new OpenNSL API, and that means the code will be in the public domain. And that means that other parties like Cumulus and stuff can start to look at the code that's here once mm-hmm. it's open sourced, mm-hmm. which would be interesting. It will be interesting. 
uh, on the same topic, I was met with um, Dinesh Dutt from Cumulus Networks, and he was telling me about their um, how they're growing their capability. They introduced a feature in their um, open source system for Cumulus Linux, which runs on Whitebox, where they're starting to use a IP unnumbered feature on OSPF and BGP to provide automatic root configuration. Mm-hmm. So instead of going in and touching the box and saying root or OSPF and all this sort of stuff and banging the CLI for, for whatever to get a configuration, they've now got an automated setup routine mm-hmm. that just auto-discovers and self-configures, which is pretty amazing. That is cool. And through that, they're actually contributing code back to Quagga, which is a BGP project. Uh-huh. So these contributions back to open source could be something that over time builds into something that suits some part of the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's entirely feasible. Um, <clears throat> and as <clears throat> I was saying earlier about people voting with their dollars, um, now that folks like Dell are trying to partner up with Cumulus and actually put a product out there that people can experiment with, I, I, we're going to really have an opportunity to see if the wider enterprise community really wants to go this path. Um, yeah, so... You know, there's just too many data points here. So, for example, if you look at what <laughs> – I'm going to keep going with this. Right? I'm not going to let you get away. Um, <laughs> did you see Pluribus announced their uh, box this week, which is the um, – it's a – let me just see if I can bring up the thing here. Super Micro Blade with a Pluribus Networks net visor inside. So what they've done is Super Micro have built a server blade, which has 24 um, – 112 Intel Atoms, ultra-low power, swappable modules, right, mm-hmm. in a 4RU rack slot. Um, and then they have a, a switch module in the back, 4 by 10 by 40 gigs, FM5224 Intel Ethernet, so Intel silicon inside of these. And they run the Pluribus SDN software on that switch to be able to hook up those 112 Intel Atoms mm-hmm. to the network. And that's a full-on, you know, SDN type of thing where you can do some pretty amazing things with that. So, um, and that is an, uh, it's somewhere between a converged platform, an SDN play, and a white box because the <laughs> server's a super micro. <laughs> the silicon is an Intel fulcrum. It's not a, you know, and then there's just this software that turns it into something awesome. Right. Um, one of these has got a stick, surely. Well, <laughs> I guess I feel like, I mean... It, Sometimes it just feels like we're talking about, you know, um, hi-fi nerds who are looking to get, you know, the best sound they can out of a system where the majority of people are just using the free earbuds that came with their iPod, right? Mm. Um, And so maybe we'll see companies like Apple did adapt by, you know, buying Beats to, to get some more credibility or, you know, figure out that there's a market for this kind of thing and so they're going to try to serve them hmm. and then you'll get the high fi nerd saying yeah but beat sucks because of xyz and that's only for posers or whatever yeah. i don't know, i just feel like um the community you run in is uh, you know really focused on a lot of cool exciting stuff yeah that i don't know the majority of the world is even necessarily going to see because they've, they've oh. got to get stuff done they're not trying to look to optimize stuff they just Need to get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. No, what I'm just saying is the. Ev- I guess my point is that the the evidence is piling up that there's momentum behind these ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I 100% and, agree. And I think usually what happens when you see this kind of momentum build up is eventually the incumbents come around to it and start to co-opt it and mm. bring it in as much as they can. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. Embrace, extend, extinguish. 
<laughs> Which is almost the motto for Cisco's ACI and UCS thing, you know. We do all the things that your servers do and extra stuff. You don't need any of the extra stuff, but we do all of that too. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's probably where it is. Ah, well, interesting times. Very interesting times. But my, my water's finished. How's yours? Uh, it's done, and I actually think I would like some caffeine now that I've tried to be a little healthy. Yeah. Me too. I might actually go and sit outside because there's some sun out there. Uh, Anything exciting happening this week for you? Uh, This week, working on some cool interop stuff. If uh, you're thinking about coming to the New York show, we've got all of the sessions and workshops that are available. Uh, You can build your schedule out, so stop on by at interop.com and and check out what's on offer. Uh, And where can people find you? People can find me at informationweek.com slash interop.asp and also on the Twitters at interop underscore Andrew. Uh, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com or on the Twitters is at etherealmind. That's the coffee break for today. It's still a work in progress. Don't forget show notes are on at packetpushers.net on the blog post that accompanies this podcast. See you in a week or two. Adios. Adios.